0: All right, good evening. So we're up to our third and final part in the book of Isaiah, Sefer Yeshayahu. Just review the dramatic buildup from last time, which is pretty dramatic and pretty building up. Uh, chapters 9 through 12 are a radical transformation in the prophet Isaiah's prophetic tenure, where it looked like everything was over. Ahaz had become a vassal of the Assyrians. It was all falling apart. Darkness without any light. You read chapter 8, you just want to cry and keep on crying. And suddenly, chapter 9, there's a light on the horizon. Things are going to be better, referring to King Chizkiah, Hezekiah, the way we pronounce it in English. And Chizkiah is going to be so righteous that he's going to transform everything. Suddenly, chapter 10 kicks off this new prediction that the Assyrian Empire, mighty as it is, God will smash it to bits, and then redemption will come. And we talked last time about the nature of the redemption, what's going on with it, and how Hezekiah himself had the potential to be that messianic king. The messianic era could have come right then. Moving along in our timeline, in the year 726 now we are, BCE, King Ahaz dies. He was a wicked king who made that horrible choice. And when Ahaz died, as I mentioned last time, Everybody, when they wrote their obituaries, whether you liked his politics or didn't like his politics, whether you liked his righteousness, which he didn't have, or whether you despised his wickedness, whatever it was, you would have written a very nice obituary. You would have said, this man saved the kingdom. He invited the Assyrians to the region. We became their vassal, and the Assyrians beat off our enemies. When he went to his grave, that was the that's what everybody's writing in the obituaries. Now, of course, people can't afford to pay the... Jerusalem Times for the obituary because they're paying such heavy taxes to the Assyrians. So they figured out some kind of deal. That's the crippling part of all of this. So King Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, takes the throne. Good evening. We have plenty of source sheets floating around. Just have to make sure that you all get them. Hezekiah takes the throne. By now, the Assyrians have eliminated Aram, the northern foe, and have already eliminated several of the northern tribes of Israel. The kingdom still stands. There is a northern kingdom, but it's subject to humiliating taxation. And Hezekiah is, thank God, nothing like his father. He swings into action. First, we'll look at the book of Kings in source number one, which runs parallel to our narratives. He, referring to Hezekiah, did what was pleasing to the Lord, just as his father David has done. had done. Father meaning ancestor. He abolished the shrines and smashed the pillars and cut down the sacred posts. Stop right there, folks. These shrines were for the sake of heaven. There were other shrines throughout Israel's history that were for the sake of various idols. These shrines are not those. These shrines are for the sake of heaven. They're serving God, and they're all over the southern kingdom of Israel, of what we call Judah, kingdom of Judah. They're illegal. The Torah outlaws all animal sacrifice outside of the temple once the temple is built. The temple is still standing. Nobody has any rights to be doing that. But no king, righteous or wicked, ever had the guts to get rid of them for the obvious reason, You try going into somebody's backyard where there's a local shrine with a sledgehammer and smashing their shrine that's for the sake of heaven. They won't like you anymore. They might even do very bad things or try to do very bad things to you. They'll say, we're serving the God of Israel. We're not serving idols. What is your problem? We don't want to go to Jerusalem. It's far. We want to serve God every day. We have a local shrine, whether it's a backyard shrine, it's a town shrine, whatever it is. We want them. Nobody had the guts. From the time of King Solomon's building of the temple till now, centuries later, to get rid of the shrines. Hezekiah got rid of the shrines. But wait, there's more. He also broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until that time, the Israelites had been offering sacrifices to it. It was called Nechushtan. I think there's an elevator company. Also, yes. it's called Nehushtan. <laughs> but okay, but this isn't the elevator company and you can still use their elevators perfectly fine. What matters for our purposes is that, talk about sacred relic material here. I mean, God is the one who ordained this thing. It's in Numbers chapter 21, if you're rusty on that story, right? Where Israelites are grumbling about the man man once again. Serpents come and start chomping on people. God tells Moshe to make this bronze serpent. Moshe does. People plague a stop. People come back to life. Really interesting story. Medical profession also likes this story, but we'll save that for another time. Point is, they have this thing, which was God-ordained, built by Moshe Rabbeinu. You don't have that many relics floating around like that. And yet, it was abused, like many other physical objects. This one was abused also. People are bringing incense to it and sacrifices. So Chizkiah says, I don't care if God ordained it and Moshe made it, and this is from the best of the best. People are abusing it, it's got to go. So he shattered it. you got to believe that the op-ed pieces the next day were severely nasty. And they were coming in from all over the country. right? Severely nasty op-eds from the shrine people who are saying, he says he serves God, but he's destroying shrines for the sake of heaven. And then you have all the other people saying, not only that, he destroyed something that God told Moshe Rabbeinu to build. He calls himself righteous. Well, the book of Kings calls him righteous. Yeah, Norman? You say they were abusing it. What was the original purpose? The original purpose was to heal people, and then to heal people in the desert story. And then, it wasn't used for healing ongoing, because it was a one-shot thing. Presumably, it was then kept around as a monument to God's power. In other words, the ideal would be to have it, look at it, say, wow, God is great, and that's it kind of like what you would take your yeshiva high school tours on, right? Take them over here, let's look at, welcome to Jerusalem, and here we have the bronze serpent from Moshe Rabbeinu. It's a tribute to God's greatness, and everybody would ooh and ah, I hope. Right, they'd still be chewing their gum, but they'd be oohing and ahing, right? So that's that's the goal of it, but if people are bringing sacrifices and incense to it, well, that's an abuse, that's treating it like an idol of sorts. So Kiskiah says, I don't really care what the origins are. I care about what's happening now. This is an abuse. It's got to go. He trusted, verse 5, he trusted only in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those before him. In other words, if you're keeping track, that means that he was just the absolute best. To get a compliment like this from a prophet is a very good thing. All right, what the prophetic author of the book of Kings is saying is that nobody before or after him was greater in faith. That's That's really good. Getting back to our messianic prediction of we want the ideal king to show up and the Assyrians are going to be miraculously destroyed and then the messianic king is going to show up. Here's our guy. This is the ideal candidate. Hezekiah is phenomenal. He's got courage. He's righteous. And this is coming off of his wicked father. He's terrific. Verse 6. He clung to the Lord. He did not turn away from following him but kept the commandments that the Lord had given to Moses. And the Lord was always with him. He was successful wherever he turned. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Several commentators point out why mention the rebellion within this context. Because you've got to have a lot of faith in God if you're going to rebel against those Assyrians. Right? It's not just, let's shift from great faith to political record. No, 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 no. His political record is happening because of his great faith. You have to have an enormous amount of faith that God is going to help somehow Because those Assyrians are going to come. Rebelling just means, by the way, they're not attacking Assyria. All they're doing is when the tax collector comes, they're saying, sorry, we're not going to pay you. The Assyrians don't like that. And usually what they do, if you do that, is they roll in with the whole army, they besiege your cities, they burn your country to the ground, and then they exile all the the survivors. And replace your... where you lived, with other people who they've already exiled. They repopulate, they shuffle up populations to make sure that nobody has any connection to the land. So that's the setting. The setting is this drama. Most faithful king ever, check, that's a good thing, he revolts against the Assyrians, so here's what I'm waiting for. I'm expecting him to revolt against the Assyrians, for the Assyrians to roll in, for God to miraculously devastate the Assyrians, and for Hezekiah to be the Messiah. That's, a, that's the script. That's actually what we should expect based on the prophecies that we read last time. Okay, the good news is that these narratives are copied almost verbatim. I don't know which came first, but they're in both places. They're in the book of Kings, and they're also in the book of Isaiah. There are narrative chapters in chapters 36 through 39, and that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. And the big mystery looming over this is, can we ascertain to the extent possible why Hezekiah was not the messianic king, why the messianic era did not come? I I can't give you the full answer because that we need to ask God. But there are elements of Isaiah's prophecies that I think will help us along in this quest. So here goes. What happened is, the narrative in chapter 36 picks up from Hezekiah's revolt. He revolted, which means, here come the Assyrians. Okay, so this fellow named the Rabshakeh. The Rabshakeh was not his name. This was a title, and it means the butler. Targum unculus actually on you know the baker and the butler who had those dreams that got Joseph out of prison. Okay, so the Aramaic Targum on the butler is Rab Shakeh. It means butler. So the, and that was a very high that was a very high position, right? Yet yeah, the king trusts you absolutely if you're his butler. A. He's sure that you will not poison him. And B You're always in the room with all of the dignitaries, which means you're overhearing very sensitive conversations even without being some spy agency doing it. You're always hearing stuff. So the king needs to trust you blind. So that's the Rabshakeh. The Rabshakeh, I have to say, even though he is wicked as all can be, he, like all the other Assyrians, is a master of psychological warfare. In other words, we're not just going to smash Jerusalem and the southern kingdom to the ground. No, first we're going to demoralize you. Good evening. So that's what he does. Rabshakeh shows up with a huge army. And here, here we have it in verse uh, source number two. The Rabshakeh said to them, they're yelling, they're surrounding Jerusalem, you tell Hezekiah, thus said the great king, the king of Assyria, what makes you so confident? I suppose mere talk makes counsel and valor for war. Ha, 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 ha. Boy, oh boy, is here ear crack up. In the meantime, lo- look, on whom are you relying that you have rebelled against me? You are relying on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which enters and punctures the palm of anyone who leans on it. That's what Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is like to all who rely on him. It's so fabulous. What you learn from this is that Hezekiah wasn't going at this on his own. He realized he needed help. He's a tiny backwater country up against the mighty Assyrian Empire. And as we discussed last time, the Egyptians are encouraging these small states to revolt, and they say, we'll help. So Hezekiah has an alliance with the Egyptians. So the Assyrians are coming in saying... You're relying on the Egyptians? Are you crazy? Let me tell you something about those Egyptians. Not only are they an unreliable... I love the... It's very poetic, this Rav Not only are they an unreliable ally, but when you lean on them, they're like a reed, right? You lean on them, which means you can't rely on them. But not only that, but you get a paper cut. That's the imagery that he's using here. You lean on the reed, not only does it not support you, but it cuts you. So the Egyptians are not going to be useful to you at all. Yeah, Miriam? Um, I wanted to ask you whether we have any corroborative evidence from other sources that you mentioned, you know, they show other places, where it says that these smaller nations were being, you know, mentored or supported by Egypt and what happened to them and why Israel could think they could rely on Egypt when they really maybe couldn't. We have sort of corroborative evidence from the outside. I don't like using the word corroborative, I like using parallel evidence, right? Because <laughs> I don't think Tanakh needs any help. But there are there, there's plenty of parallel material from all of the all of all of the region. The Assyrians wrote all was kinds Egypt of stuff. A reliable ally? Huh? Was Egypt a reliable ally? No, they never were. Not in not in Isaiah's lifetime and not in Jeremiah's lifetime. Israel kept on hoping that Egypt would come through. Egypt really was protecting Egypt. Egypt really didn't care about So why were they fooled? they were encouraged. The Egyptians promised help. Sometimes alliances work out nicely, and sometimes they really don't. One of, the, one of the messages which Isaiah is going to very passionately espouse is you can't rely on Egypt for a whole pile of reasons, political and religious. But from a political point of view, this was a disaster. The Rav doesn't care about theology, or at least not ours. He's just saying it's a foolish alliance. The Egyptians are not going to help you. Yeah, Sherry? To whom is uh, Rav speaking? To the Jews, Judeans on the walls of Jerusalem. On the walls of Jerusalem? Yeah, they're at the walls. They're, standing, you know, they're inside the city. The besieging army is outside. Oh, okay, that makes it clear. Yeah. So, and if you tell me, verse 7, and if you tell me that you're relying on the Lord your God, he is the very one whose shrines and altars Hezekiah did away with, telling Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship only at this altar. Smart guy. He knows what we could have surmised he realizes he has a pulse, He has a finger on the pulse of Jerusalem, which is a lot of Judeans are upset that Hezekiah got rid of the shrines. So he's hoping to stir up opposition within the walls of Jerusalem. He's saying you're relying on God? God is angry at you because he's removing the shrines. And you can hear many Judeans second-guessing their king on that one, saying, you know, we have this mighty army right here, burning the... By the way, while this is going on, the Assyrians are burning the rest of the south to the ground, as reported in the Book of Kings. And also in the book of Isaiah. I, didn't, I don't have that in our excerpts. But they're burning the rest of the, the country to the ground. There's an incredible, if you go to the British Museum, that's not where it started out. It started out in Nineveh, in the palace of the Assyrians. There are these incredible wall reliefs of the battle against Lachish. Lachish was the second most important city to Jerusalem in terms of military, military strength. And there's an incredibly graphic series of wall panels that you can look at at the British Museum, which have scenes made by the Assyrians of this battle against Lachish. You know, the first one, the besieging armies are there, and they have battering rams. So what the Judean defenders are doing are actually shooting arrows down from the walls and also throwing torches, hoping to get those logs on fire. That's how they were trying to defend against the battering rams. You actually see this. Then, of course, in later scenes, you have the Assyrians with you know, weapons through the Judeans, you know, standing on them, killing them, and you have other ones leading off the rest into exile. Lachish fell, as did every other town that was under Assyrian attack. What's amazing is that the Assyrians put the Battle of Lachish Wall reliefs in like, the central hall of their palace. This is like their favorite artwork. And we'll have to get back to that point in just a little while. Very, very interesting. So, so the whole kingdom of Judah is getting burned to the ground while this is all going on. Jerusalem is stronger. Jerusalem has more people, and it's a, it's a much more fortified city. And, of course, it is on a hill, and therefore it's harder for a besieging army to defeat it than these other ones. Okay, so the Rav Shakeh is hoping to discourage the people of Jerusalem. Perhaps they will surrender, and he actually calls on them to surrender. He says, if you surrender, at least you'll live. But if you hang in there, do you seriously think you're going to beat the Assyrian army? Nobody ever has. And you think your God is going to protect you? A, he's angry at you. B, we've beaten everybody else. Their gods haven't been able to stop us. So your God isn't going to stop us either. And that's what the Rav Shachai says over here. Verse 18. Beware of letting Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will save us. Did any of the gods of the other nations save his land from the king of Assyria? So this is devastating. The Rav is hurling taunts and barbs and the Jude- there's one really cool history of language thing in that chapter which we skipped where the king's advisors, Hezekiah's advisors say, hey Rav would you mind speaking in Aramaic? Because that was already the lingua franca of the region. Every, you know, The high officials all knew Aramaic and that was the international language. So the... Hezekiah's advisors didn't want the regular Jews to hear this taunting because it was very demoralizing. So they said, "Look, we understand Aramaic. We're educated. And we'll tell the king whatever you say. We'll get the message to the king, but we don't want to demoralize the people." And the Rabshakeh says, "I didn't come here to negotiate. I came here to demoralize you." And he kept on talking in Hebrew. And he said, "This is psychological warfare. The battle is going to come. Don't just you wait." But first, I want to discourage every single person in the city. I'm not interested in negotiating with you, with you officials. That's not what this is for. We're here to destroy you. All right, so chapter 37, rolls in. King Hezekiah hears all the message of this. Verse, uh, source 3. When King Hezekiah heard this, he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. He goes to the temple, and obviously he's, he's despondent. Part of him, I'm sure, is thinking, what have I done by revolting against the Assyrians? This really is not working, right? The rest of my country is getting trashed. Jerusalem is going to fall, because how am I going to de- defeat them? The Egyptians don't seem very helpful all of a sudden, as Miriam was, was correctly pointing out. What will happen? He also sent Eliakim, who was in charge of the palace, Shevna, the scribe, and the senior priest covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz. So here's Ishayahu in in the narrative side of the equation. So they go to him, Isaiah said to them, tell your master as follows. Thus said the Lord, do not be frightened by the words of blasphemy against me that you have heard from the minions of the king of Assyria. I will delude him. He will hear a rumor and return to his land and I will make him fall by the sword in his land. Dot, dot, dot. Assuredly, thus said the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. He shall not enter this city. He shall not shoot an arrow at it or advance upon it with a shield or pile up a siege mound against it. He shall go back by the way he came. He shall not enter the city, declares the Lord. I will protect and save this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. That night an angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. And following morning they were all dead corpses. Wow. This is a miracle. God saved Jerusalem. God did it for his namesake and for the sake of the Davidic dynasty. And all of a sudden, the Assyrians lost. It never happened before. The Assyrians couldn't take Jerusalem. And this is a climactic moment. Now, from our point of view, plugging this all into the book of Isaiah, meaning the prophecies of Isaiah. Okay, God has purged the wicked of the north and the south. Check, chapter nine. God has now miraculously destroyed the Assyrians. He hasn't defeated their empire, but at least he has routed them. In Jerusalem, check Hezekiah. This fabulous, fabulous king is on the throne. He's brought about religious reformation. He's purged the land of idolatry, of these foreign shrines, even of this brass, this bronze serpent. He's doing everything right. And now God has done this tremendous miracle. I'm, 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 we want Mashiach now. Like this, it, it's got to, it's got to happen, right? Now, before we get to that, yeah, sorry, Barry. Uh, how did they come? Uh, did oh, so. Also, this seems very similar to like, the I wish it was the Jews story. repenting in that story, it's the people of Ninveh. Uh, yeah. He, he yeah: Yeah, that's a common very good. That's a common imagery. In other words, mourning involved sackcloth, ashes, tearing clothes. That's a, that, that wasn't just for us. We did it, but that was a widespread practice. You're right. In terms of how they died, if you want a rationalist answer, which is perfectly plausible, Josephus already suggested it, there must have been some kind of massive plague. You know, an outbreak of a plague and everybody's just dropping dead. That's the more rationalist way of taking it, and that's perfectly fine. That would be God's agency for that. N- Nancy? Shrines should not be worshipped at, and there should only be one. Excellent point. I mean, the Torah orders there to be no shrine. So Hezekiah is following the Torah. I'm sure that some other people in the country, certainly the prophets, would support that move, but also other people, God fearing Israelites who believe in the Torah and who observe the Torah, would say this is the right thing to do. But there are many others who are God fearing, they're religious, who still aren't keeping the Torah properly. There have been in every age like that, and so that's presumably who he's up against there. So I think it's a fair question. We don't know. The, the Bible seldom gives actual percentages of data. We just get these sweeping statements about the religious state of the people. So when it's good, I'm happy, even though I'm sure some people aren't quite up to speed. And when it says that they're bad, I'm sure that there are some people who are good, but it's, it's still a negative impression that the Bible wants to convey. Now, going back to Miriam's question from before, we actually do have the writings of San the Assyrian emperor at this time. It's this fabulous thing. It's this huge slab of rock. It's called a prism because it actually is, you know, it's, you know what a prism yeah. looks like, right? Huh? It's got facets like that. It's a huge, huge, huge document or, 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 or stone, stone document. And he actually writes more about the battle against the southern kingdom of Judah than about any other nation that he fought. So here's the English translation of that in source number four. As to Hezekiah the Jew, he did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities, walled forts and to countless small villages in their vicinity, and conquered them by means of well-stamped earth ramps and battering rams. I drove out of them 200,150 people. Himself I made a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence like a bird in a cage. In other words, he's describing... The siege, right? He was trapped. He couldn't get out, just like a bird in a cage. Hezekiah himself, whom the terror-inspiring splendor of my lordship, not that he thinks too uh, highly of himself or anything, had overwhelmed, and whose irregular and elite troops which he had brought into Jerusalem, his royal residence, in order to strengthen it, had deserted him, did send me later 30 talents of gold, 800 talents of silver, all kinds of valuable treasures. All right. This is fabulous. Is Is he rewriting history here? No. He's telling the truth. He's just slanting it a little different, right? He doesn't say that he took Jerusalem. He just doesn't want to emphasize the fact that, oh, and we lost. Because <laughs> that, 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 that wouldn't fly. You're never going to find any Assyrian king or his scribes writing like that. He's telling the truth. He destroyed most of the southern kingdom, got a lot of tribute, and besieged Jerusalem, exactly as the Bible said. So Professor Mark Brettler at, at Brandeis University and in one of his books, very nicely, you, just have, you have to imagine fonts for just a minute. A modern-day historian might write, here are the facts. Sanchei Rive invaded the South, destroyed most of it, besieged Jerusalem, did not conquer it. Right? Sanchei Rive would write, I besieged the South and I conquered most of it. we oh, he didn't capture Jerusalem. Right? And then the Tanakh account is, He besieged the south and conquered much of it, and Jerusalem was spared by God. It's all true. Everybody's telling the truth in this case. I wouldn't always trust the Assyrian kings, but in this case, he's telling it exactly as it is. He's just giving it a very different spin, which obviously focuses on how mighty and powerful he is. So contemporary scholars who study these sorts of things all come to the same conclusion. The reason why he's writing so much about this tiny country of Judah, we care about them, I'm glad Tanakh has a lot to say about it, but I'm shocked that the Assyrians care so much about us. And so they suggest, and I think very plausibly, he's spending so much time talking about the siege and the plunder and this and that city, because obviously he has a major ego problem here. How could we have lost? And some scholars suggest that's why the Assyrian kings... Can you imagine that in your central hall you don't have some battle against the Babylonians or some mighty nation that you defeated? You have Lachish the second most important city of a tiny country of Yehuda. So they suggest the reason why they made that their supreme artwork, that everybody, every visitor to the palace would see this upon coming to see the king. It sounds like they put it up there and made such a big deal about it because they felt really crummy that they lost Jerusalem. So let's highlight the positive. Let's highlight the fact that they defeated Lachish, and so all of a sudden there's all kinds of artwork like that. So it's amazing. We have this incredible miracle which Sancheri was quite embarrassed by, obviously, and the Assyrians were quite embarrassed by it. But the bottom line is, this is the culmination of Isaiah chapter 10, that God has miraculously smitten down the Assyrians, he has saved Jerusalem, and we have the most righteous king ever on the throne. But then instead of just saying, and thus Messiah came, the end, and then you and I would be in a very different place in so many ways, so would the world. Instead, the narrative continues. Source 5. In those days... Hezekiah fell dangerously ill. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz, came and said to him, Thus said the Lord, Set your affairs in order, for you are going to die. You will not get well. So then Hezekiah cries. God decides... Yeah, it's great. Hezekiah cries. God says, I'll give you 15 more years. I will also rescue you and this city from the hands of the king of Assyria. I will protect this city. Okay. So when did this story occur? Before. Before. Right, Very clearly, as Rashi already notices, and many later commentators pick this up as well, for obvious reasons, it's very clear that this illness occurred prior to the miraculous salvation of Jerusalem. Not much. Could have even been during, in theory. But at the very least, Jerusalem had not yet been saved. But God is promising that I will save Jerusalem. Okay, that's fine. So we have a concept in... You know, the sages already talked about this. It's called, <laughs> Right? that even historical narratives need not be placed in chronological order they could be but sometimes theme trumps history so in this case the huh you that word trumps sorry I'll, I'll see if i can find a way to get other other candidates in by accident but in the meantime but there's always a reason for it. It's not just, oh, let's mix things up. It's, there's a thematic reason why our author or editor is going to put the chapters in this order. And for this, we need to read chapter 39. At that time, source 6, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with a letter and a gift to Hezekiah, for he had heard about his illness and recovery. How sweet this king of Babylonia is! Talk about chesed. Talk about bikur cholim Here's the mighty king of Babylonia, a zillion miles off to the east, right? Bringing a box of chocolate and some flowers to King Hezekiah because I heard you were sick. What a pal. In fact, he's such a pal that Josephus, followed by a barbonell, just don't believe it. He's not such a nice guy. He's not going to travel all this far. Just to say, wow! I heard you were sick. You know, get well soon. You know, feel free if you need anything. And I'm going to go back to Babylonia. Come on, why is he coming to Jerusalem to visit Hezekiah? Huh? He wants to build an alliance against the Assyrians. He's off to the east of Assyria, Babylonia. So what he's trying to do now is check out: Do I have worthy Western allies? and maybe we can make one big Assyrian sandwich. You know, if we attack from the east, and these guys attack from the west, and Egypt helps, ha ha ha, but if they do, maybe we can catch the Assyrians off guard and throw them into total turmoil. So the Bikor Chalim call was an excellent, you know, cover, but give me a break. He's he's trying to make an alliance with Hezekiah. So verse 2, Hezekiah was pleased by their coming. And he showed them his treasure house. In other words, yeah, I can, I can be a player here, right? Silver, the gold, the spices, the fragrant oil, all of his armory, everything that was to be found in the storehouses. There was nothing in his palace or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Okay, so what he's doing is he's saying, this is great! The Babylonians are interested in us. That means I'm a serious player in this in this combat. Let's let's we're part of this. We have money, we have army, we can we have allies. We're all gonna get in this together. Let's revolt. Yeah. Well there's something that strikes me about both of these references, five and six. Okay. There, there's a kind of emotional context because looking at five, it seems like you know, God has given him the ability, given him a kind of relief, a or not even relief, something to say to him. Don't worry. No matter what, it's going to work out. It's a kind of a personal... Your point is well taken, but, 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 but. These stories occurred before that don't worry. Before? The don't don't worry worry. thing. Oh, but you understand what I'm saying. It works out in terms of the flow. I think your point is very good. It's illness. Understood. In the context of that, and then later, look at this final response about, you know what, okay... This is what the Lord
1: says. Okay, so so here we have to read
0: it. Here we have to read it. No, I understand. I think it's part and parcel. Very, very, very good insight in terms of you know what's, what's going down here. But Isaiah comes in in verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. First, what he said is, Hey, Hezekiah, who were these people and what were they doing? And Hezekiah says, Well, it was the king of Babylonia and all of the officials and I showed him everything. But that was just a setup to get him to the condemnation, which is... Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. A time is coming when everything in your palace, which your ancestors have stored up to this day, will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left behind, said the Lord. And some of your sons, your own issue, whom you will have fathered, will be taken to serve as eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. In other words, you showed off all of your wealth, you're lining up with these Babylonians. One day... The Assyrians won't be the problem anymore. One day, the Babylonians are going to be the problem. And they're going to come right into Jerusalem, and they're going to defeat Jerusalem. And your great-grandchildren, or whoever, your descendants, who are the Davidic kings at that time, they're going to go into exile with them. A horrible condemnation, and the first time that we hear foreshadowing of the destruction of the temple. And listen to Hezekiah's response. The righteous king... Verse 8, Hezekiah declared to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. In other words, it sounds like he accepts God's decree, for he thought it means that safety is assured for my time. Several of our commentators throw their arms in the air, and they're like, what? Oh, there's going to be a destruction of Jerusalem, but thank God I'll be dead. That's their problem, not mine. That's what it sounds like. And several commentators read it exactly that way, and they jump down his throat. They say, this is awful. What kind of king are you? He's supposed to be the most righteous, faithful king ever. And all of a sudden when he's told, oh look, it's the will of God and oh, whew, man, my great-grandchildren are really going to pay the price that I'm going to be okay. It is shocking to imagine even a wicked king thinking this way about his kingdom. Wicked kings still care about their, their kingdom sometimes and certainly their dynasties. It sounds like Hezekiah utterly does not care. So we have two problems here. One is what just happened here? And the other one is the more global problem of why our prophetic narrator placed chapters 38 and 39 after 36-37, meaning, here's what matters in all of this, the climactic moment in the narrative should have been the salvation of Jerusalem, chapter 37. That's what I wanted it to be. That's what you wanted it to be. That's what everybody wants it to be, right? Instead, the climactic moment in the narrative is that, yes, Jerusalem will be spared today, but in just a few generations, it will fall. That's now the climactic point of all of these narratives. So it's shocking. So here's what's going down the pike. The battle between Hezekiah and Isaiah is actually one of the most fascinating battles in the entire Bible. Between Isaiah and, Isaiah and Hezekiah. They're at odds with each other here. I always think of righteous kings being the first people to get in line to listen to the prophets. Here, Hezekiah is not listening to the prophet. And boy, oh boy, did he not listen to the prophet on this whole situation. And we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But first I have to set the table. table goes like this. What does it mean, quote, to have faith in God? In what? To have faith. What does it mean? And the Bible gives two parallel answers, which occasionally come into severe conflict. Usually they're in sync, right? You keep the Torah, you have a relationship with God, you do all the right things. All right, you have faith. That's what it means to have faith. But Hezekiah has been praised to the high heavens by the prophetic narrator in the book of Kings and also here as being the most faithful, righteous king ever. Okay, It's important to keep that in mind at all times. There's nobody better than he. He's the most faithful king. But what does it mean to have faith in this story? <coughs> Halakha gives a decisive answer to this question. Halakha tells us what it means to have faith is al We are never allowed to rely on the miraculous on explicit, overt, divine intervention. We must always do everything that we can. Israel must have an army, right? And bless them every single moment of the way, right? They must, even if everybody were totally righteous. Israel must have an army, why? Because you cannot rely on supernatural intervention. We have to do everything we can to protect our citizens, okay? That's halachic faith. Halachic faith means we never rely on miracles. So if you ask Hezekiah... What is your track record on this revolt against the Assyrians? He will tell you. I have prayed. I have taught everybody else how to pray. Shari, give me a few minutes, please. Thank you. I have taught everybody else how to pray. I am righteous to the high heavens. Just ask the author of the Book of Kings. I have gotten my whole nation to repent. I have destroyed all illegal objects, from the idolatry to the shrines to the nechushtan. And... I've made an alliance with the Egyptians and with the Babylonians and with anybody else who's willing to ally with me. And I'm building up the military. And, having learned at Yeshiva Rakhotel for two years, you know that big wall in the Rova from Chizkiyahu, right? That's from him. He built it. I made the walls of Jerusalem even stronger because we have to, we have to do everything that we can to keep out those Assyrians. That's, that's what we do when you're the king. I'm responsible for the lives of my nation. Right? And I'm going to dig those Hezekiah's tunnels that we get to hike through if we want to. Right, It's really fun. And so he's the one digging those tunnels to prepare the water supply for the city. And that's what it means to have halachic faith. He totally trusts in God. He is as religious as can be. He got the whole nation to be religious as can be. And he made all the proper military preparations. That's halachic faith, pinnacle of it. And that's why the Book of Kings can praise him the way that it does. He genuinely was the most faithful king. He couldn't, he couldn't do anything more. Ah, then there's prophetic faith. That's something different. Prophetic faith, from a rational point of view, is next to impossible to do. Prophetic faith, which Isaiah keeps on proclaiming to Hezekiah, is no 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 no. Just serve God and just pray to God and just get the people to be religious. And don't make alliances, and don't make any military preparations at all, and God will take care of the rest. We need to glorify God here. And if you have a strong army and great allies and great walls and great water supplies, some people might think the reason why you won is because of your efforts. You have to have faith, prophetic faith. Prophetic faith means put down the weapons, put down the walls, get rid of your allies, and every time you make an alliance or build up a wall or dig your tunnels, that shows a lack of prophetic faith in God. This is a different standard of faith to put it mildly, right? So you cannot believe, you read these passages in the book of Isaiah here, like source number seven. Here's the prophet himself speaking, and you can see very well who he's talking to. Ha! Those who go down to Egypt for help and rely upon horses, how dare you make an alliance with the Egyptians? They have put their trust in an abundance of chariots and vast numbers of riders, and they have not turned to the Holy One of Israel. They have not sought the, sought the Lord. And Hezekiah heard this prophecy. What did he respond? Well, what would he respond? It's not in this passage. What would he respond? What do you want us to do? We can't just lay down and play dead. He said, of course I've sought the Lord. (laughs) What are you talking about? It's not either or. Halakhic faith is both. Halakhic faith requires that we serve God. I, of course, put my trust in God. But I also must do everything that I possibly can to maximize odds of victory. That's my responsibility as a king. That's halakhic faith. And Isaiah here is saying it's either or. If you make an alliance with Egypt, that means you don't trust God. Shocking. That's the conflict here. Verse 2. But he is too wise. He has brought on misfortune. He has not canceled his word. So he shall rise against the house of evildoers and the allies of workers of iniquity. For the Egyptians are man, not God. Their horses are flesh, not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his arm, the helper shall trip and the helped one shall fall and both shall perish together. He's blasting Hezekiah. Blasting him. He's saying, how dare you make alliances with Egypt? And in our story that we just read in chapter 39... He says, How dare you make an alliance with the Babylonians? This is faithless. And in fact, faithlessness brings about our doom. And indeed, it's going to lead to the Assyrians damaging us now, and it's going to lead to the Babylonian exile down the line. Or how about this one? Oh, it's not even in the, t- it's not in the source sheet, But I'll tell you some other ones. He blasts them for building that wall that's right there in the robot says, here you are knocking down homes, because where do you think you're getting all the stones from? <laughs> knocking down homes to build up the walls of Jerusalem? You think they're really going to help? It's, God will help. You don't need these walls. You don't need these alliances. This is faithless. He blasts Hezekiah for making all of his military preparations. And so if you ask Hezekiah, what are you trying to accomplish by this revolt? The answer is, I put my full trust in God and I've done everything religiously on a personal and a national level that I could possibly do. There's nothing more I could do. I got the whole nation to repent. That's pretty impressive, right? And I'm doing every last bit of military preparation that I could do to help my people. If it means allying with the Babylonians and the Egyptians, that's great. That's not a conflict in faith. That's part of my faith. I have to fight the Assyrians and I have to protect my people. If you ask Isaiah, what should be happening here? Hezekiah should just sit back, have faith in God. God will take care of the rest. Okay, a couple things out, Sandra. Okay, how, how, how does Isaiah, for, for me, how do we reconcile this with Jacob? When he was facing, you know, a 400 soldiers, which is like a giant number, and his brother who was on the march to probably to kill him. And uh, so he does a few things. He does things militarily. He prays to God at Selenium. God does not answer him, so he's met with silence. What does he do? And so he does all these things. And of course, in the end, he praises God because God, in fact, saved him. So how do you reconcile the fact that in one part of the Tanakh, yes, you have to do... You have to have halachic faith into both things. And yet, Isaiah here, it's almost self... I hate to say it, because I actually really like Isaiah anyway. I like him too. It's almost self-serving. Like you're saying this, and we already know the whole thing is going to crumble to the ground going to be burned in exile. In other words, if if he's blasting... Hezekiah for doing what, for instance, the patriarch Jacob did when he was at the bottom of the well. So so just to answer you in a nutshell, you can't reconcile them. Mm -hmm. This is irreconcilable. There are two layers of faith. One is halakhic faith. One is prophetic faith. And they clash in this story. Hezekiah says, what am I supposed to do? I can't rely on a miracle. In the end, by the way, Isaiah, of course, was right. He had prophecy, right? Hezekiah's military preparations did not save Jerusalem. God personally did. Right, Isaiah was right all along. He's a prophet. Hezekiah says, "I can't, de- I cannot risk my country to that miracle." Okay, Sherry. No. Firstly,
1: just just briefly, one, just one week. Yeah. No, <clears throat> Come on, it can be
0: encompassed in three words: Amasham I He. And that's the bottom line, because ultimately responsibility lies in our shoulders, which is why I don't think it's negative when it, though it seems to be, when uh Hezekiah says it meant that safety is for thing. That safety is meant for our time. You know what that says it I can feel somewhat assured that whatever I do is the right thing to take care of my country. Fabu- I think fabulous that reading. Is not in his hands. Fabulous reading. We're gonna get right back to that in just a moment, Sue. And But in in the Torah itself, uh, uh, the the sea didn't split until Nachshon went in up to his eyeball, up to his nostrils, and with all Jacob's praying, he also divided his army and took preparations. Fine. From that doesn't it tell us that we're supposed to do both? There's always elements of both, just for the record, and believe me, you're not the first person to make this mistake. I, I, I once was giving a shiur to very, very learned people like you, and when I said that the part with Nachshon going in first isn't in the Torah, none of them believed me. And so I said, look, we all have our humashim, let's just open them up, and as soon as you find it, let me know, and I showed them where to look. and It's, it's not there, it's in a midrash. It's an important midrash which has a very important family of other midrashim with it, so you can't bring that as evidence of what the Torah teaches, because it's, it's in a Midrash, but it's all, but all the same, it's hitting on the same point, which is, there are times that God interferes, obviously in the case of the splitting of the Red Sea. God said, I don't want you to do anything, I'm going to take care of everything. Isaiah wants this salvation of Jerusalem to be like that. He's saying, Hezekiah, sit back, relax, and let God take care of the rest, and then it will be like a new exodus, which is exactly what he prophesied the Messianic era would be. God takes care of, it's exactly your point, God takes care of everything, people don't have to do anything, God is glorified, people can sing a song, the messianic era is here. But Hezekiah said, I can't do that. Right? That's exactly what's the conflict. Hezekiah is saying, the best way to save Jerusalem is to have faith and do everything I can to save Jerusalem militarily. Isaiah is saying, that's great halakhic faith, but the Messiah won't come this way. Isaiah realizes that everything is at stake here. He says the Messianic era, at least in his prophetic conception, is that God will handle everything. And as soon as Hezekiah is handling something, that's a problem. And that's their fight. Now let's go back to Sherry's reading, which is also the reading of Amos Chacham in the Dat source number 6. Source 6, we read the very last verse. Source 6, verse 8, in chapter 39. Hezekiah declared to Isaiah... The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought it means that safety is assured for my time. So earlier commentators read it the way that many of us might read it also, which is, whew, at least I'm not going to get it. Amos Khan says that's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is what Shari just said. Right? Namely, Chizkiah said, Isaiah, you're the prophet of God. I'm as righteous and faithful as they go. I respect you. I want to do everything you say, but I cannot Do this. I need my responsibility as a king is to assure that there will be safety for my time. I can't worry about a hundred years from now. I have the Assyrians out right there outside the walls. I have to get rid of them. I have to save my people. I must do everything I can. If that means inviting the Babylonians and the Egyptians to help, great. Anything that I could do to get these Assyrians out of here is my responsibility as the king. And if this happened again, I would do it again. He's telling Isaiah, I have to disagree. I'm a halachic faith man, and you're, order, you're ordering me to have prophetic faith. So the breakdown in this story is that Hezekiah rightly, even though he's defying the prophet, goes down as the most righteous king ever. And the prophets say that about him because he represents halachic faith. By the way, to go back to one other question that Sandra asked, in our day and age, how do we reconcile it? It's easier. We don't have prophecy. We must follow halakhic faith. We don't have a prophet ordering us to suspend halachic faith and use prophetic faith, right? So we don't have that conflict, but Hezekiah did. And Hezekiah, not only does he have this conflict, but he tells Isaiah at the end, you proclaim the doom of my descendants from Babylonia. I'm, that's God's will, that's God's will. But I can't fear that. My job is to worry about today. And my son's job is going to be to worry about tomorrow. That's what kings have to do. Just give me a couple of minutes to make sure I bring this point home. So what happens at this moment is a breaking point. That's why the narrative had to end with the climactic point of Babylonia is going to come and destroy Jerusalem and not the miraculous salvation of Jerusalem. That's why the narratives had to be out of order. Because the whole point here is that Isaiah realizes at this moment, this most heartbreaking thing, he's looking at messianic potential. He's talking to the messianic king. He's talking to Hezekiah himself, the most righteous king ever. And he's saying, Hezekiah, if you could just suspend your halachic faith for this battle, and God is glorified, we have a new exodus, Bing! Hezekiah said, I will not do that. But why do you call it a halachic faith? Right? You're saying Hezekiah downplayed God's miracle, and that's why the miracle didn't happen. No, 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 he, he didn't downplay the miracle. I'm sure he was thrilled out All of his line, mind at the miracle. By making these alliances. Right, because he couldn't count on the point that, that happened before the miracle. The alliances are happening before miracle well, That's the point. So he's making these alliances because he doesn't know if God is really going to smite everybody. It's very nice that God showed up and knocked off 185,000 soldiers. But if he doesn't, then, has, then Jerusalem gets burned to the ground. Hezekiah said, I can't rely on that. But then he doesn't have faith. He doesn't have Isaiah's level of faith. He doesn't have prophetic faith. Hezekiah says, I can't have prophetic faith. I have to have halachic faith. Okay, that's the conflict in this story. So he fails Isaiah's vision. You're absolutely right. That's why Isaiah is despondent. He's saying, great, you blew it. You're not the Messiah. If you're not the Messiah, that means that the pagan empire is going to live on. And if the pagan empire lives on, sure, one day the Assyrians will crumble, but now the Babylonians will replace them. That's what he's saying. The pagan empire, which is God's ultimate enemy, is going to live on now because the Messiah didn't come. With the pagan empire living on, the Babylonians will eventually destroy Jerusalem, which is exactly what happened a century or so later. Right? That's what's going down here. So Hezekiah failed Isaiah's standard. You're absolutely right. But he was at what we would call a Tzaddik Gamur, an absolutely righteous man. Okay, Doug? What is the, the king's view of prophets? Because of, he has a prophet telling him this. Right? Why should he, like, what, what What does Hezekiah do? He believes that Isaiah is a prophet. He, he, he loves and respects him and honors him. He's, he's certainly not being disrespectful. He's just saying, I am wired to the bone to keep halacha and halachic faith. That's my whole being. And that's my responsibility as king. Even a prophet of God ordering me otherwise, I can't do it. I cannot subject my people to that risk of saying, if everybody is religious, you can put down your guns and we'll win anyway because God will make a miracle. And let's say he doesn't, then we're all going to die. I'm not going to be the king to do that. We're not putting down our guns, right? That's what Hezekiah is saying. I can't do it. I have to assure safety for my people. That's my job. So you're right. That's the conflict of our story. So Isaiah trashes him. But within Tanakh itself, the prophets extol Hezekiah, including in our book, as being the most righteous king ever. That's the paradox of our story. So it's important to understand that. Not only is he not a Rasha, he's simply not living up to this miraculous demand of, of Isaiah. And that brings us full circle. If you ask the book of Isaiah, what was Hezekiah's record? The answer is, he was the most righteous king who ever lived. He brought about a full reformation. He was a tzaddik amur. He, Jerusalem was saved in his time, but he was not the Messianic king. He didn't have that miraculous level of faith, and as Norman put correctly, that made him fail the ultimate possibility that he had. Messiah didn't come and the pagan empire lived on and will simply be inherited by the Babylonians. What happened after this miraculous salvation of Jerusalem? We don't know. But here's what I think happened. I'm sure that Hezekiah right away rustled everybody together and they sang the most beautiful Hallel ever. As they should. They should thank God to the high heavens for what just happened. And everybody's singing Hallel. They're praising God. They're singing psalms. How could you not? God overtly saved Jerusalem. It's one of the great miracles of history. And even the Assyrians very begrudgingly and silently admit it. It's amazing what happened. But one person was crying his eyes out and would never stop crying his eyes out, and that is Isaiah. Because he knew, like nobody else could know, that the Messianic era was there, and it just slipped away. He looks around, and he looks back on his whole career. Now he's a very old man. And he sees that, you know, when I started as a young prophet, it was the Silver Age, political stability, wealth. Everybody was here, but we were immoral. So I tried to fix that, but nobody listened. Then came God's decree. Then I pleaded with King Ahaz, don't make an alliance with the Assyrians, don't become their vassal, it's going to lead to doom and destruction. But he ignored me. Then there was this bright hope, brightest hope ever in all of biblical history. Hezekiah himself, he could have been the Messianic king. God struck down down the Assyrians against Jerusalem. Miracles happened. We had it all. But he couldn't bring himself to prophetic faith. He stayed with halachic faith. Messiah is not coming. Pagan empire lives on. And what happened meantime? The ten lost tribes are now lost. The southern kingdom is burned to the ground. All that's left is Jerusalem. And it will only be a matter of a century or so until the Babylonians come and destroy that and that's how he goes to his grave which is why probably his very last prophecy is what you find at the very beginning of the book source number 8 your land is a waste he says, the old prophet that's how the book began your city is burnt down before your eyes the yield of your soil is consumed by strangers a wasteland is overthrown by strangers he's not singing halal today Fair Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city beleaguered. Had not the Lord of hosts left us some survivors, we should be like Sodom and other Amorah. We're all destroyed. All that's left is Jerusalem because of this miracle. We've lost. Chapters 1 through 39 are a closed circle of, of failed opportunities. Isaiah's whole life revolved around that. Nancy? This may be an unanswerable question, but I mean, is the underlying logic Sure. So, so what is the, logic? the logic is that look if God wanted he could have just made us all perfect in the first place and we could have stayed in the garden of Eden and it would have been a much more pleasant world but we wouldn't be people there's a partnership throughout the whole Bible it's one of the central themes so the upside of the partnership is it dignifies us as human beings and gives us a very important role to play the downside is people sometimes do terrible things right? that's why the messianic era hasn't come because a lot of terrible things continue to happen So I can't give you the full answer of why did God, but I can tell you that the entire Bible is predicated on your question, a free will from the very beginning. In other words, we're not in an Eden-like world. It's up to us to make it back to the Garden of Eden, but that's a lot of hard work, and we we haven't succeeded yet. So chapters 1 through 39 are a total failure, and it's really very depressing indeed. And specifically, the book begins with his last prophecy, and then moves into his first prophecy so that you get that circle. You feel the sense of absolute failed opportunities. He goes to the grave as a failure and and really very depressed, having seen the country of Israel go from 12 robust tribes to the city of Jerusalem and mostly wasteland. Really terrible. Now, the best analogy to what happens next in the couple minutes I have left is actually our holiday that we call Simchat Torah. Simchat Torah is an amazing holiday for so many reasons, and not just because of those little flags that you get to wave when you're a little kid, although that's... Don't, not to slight those little flags. But what, what, what matters is that when we read the Torah, we finish the Torah, and then what, is, what do we do in our liturgical readings? We complete the Torah. And then start it again. We start again and... And continue. And, no, no, no. And what's the Haftarah? The Haftarah is we read on. We read the book of Joshua. Right? We, it, in one fell swoop. It's a fabulous reading situation, right? We cycle back to show that, here we go again, new cycle is beginning, right? That's what we're celebrating. But the Haftarah moves ahead to remind us, yes, we have to keep going over the Torah, but the show goes on. The book of Isaiah does that too. The book of Isaiah is the supreme Simcha Torah situation. Chapter 39 loops back to chapter 1, and you have a total cycle of going back, failure, failed opportunities. With chapters 1 through 39, that's what you get. Ah, but then there's more chapters. There's 40 through 66 also. And the first thing that you get in source number 9... Is Nachamu, Nachamu Ami, right? Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and deca- declare to her that her term of service is over, that her iniquity is expiated, for she has received at the hand of the Lord double for all of her sins. These next 27 chapters are primarily and fundamentally consolation that there will be redemption from the Babylonian exile. And it's, that's the moving to Sefer Yehoshua part, moving to the book of Joshua part. And look what happens when that goes here's a quick outline of the book you don't even have to write all of this down but watch this chapter one gloom and doom chapter two redemption chapter three more gloom and doom chapter four redemption chapter five six seven eight real gloom and real doom but then nine through twelve quick turnaround hezekiah potential for the messianic era 13 through 23 all the nations of the region are going to get clobbered but 24 through 27 redemption is coming 28 through 33, more condemnation, doom, gloom, all of those things. 34, 35, appendix, more redemption. 36 through 39, that we read tonight, ends in failure. But then, 40 through 66, there's hope at the end of the tunnel after all. The book of Isaiah, simultaneously, it's fabulous, is a story of failed opportunities. That's the cycle of 1 through 39, where every single chance during Isaiah's lifetime, he was hoping something big would happen and then. Well, none of that happened. And then, the entire book is also, after every gloom and doom, there's always hope at the end of that tunnel. There's always that new opportunity. God is always waiting with his open arms. The consolations at the end of the book transform the whole book to that other dimension, which is how the sages can refer to our book as Kulei Nechemta. It is all consolation. What we've been reading, it ain't all, all consolation at all. But the structure of the book is all consolation. The structure of the book is every single time it looks like it's lost, Suddenly a new prophecy emerges on the horizon and suddenly good things are going to happen. And that is the book of Isaiah. It makes us, it's, it's given us more hope than any other book as a people precisely because of that. That even though you see all of this gloom and all of this doom and heartbreaking failures, and if you get into the guts of the book, you really see how devastated the poor prophet is, seeing one opportunity after another get squandered. But the reason why it's kept us afloat as a people is because there's always that next, there's always that light at the end of the tunnel more than any other prophet. The prophet Isaiah is the one who has consoled us through very long exile and gives us so much hope into the future. So bless Isaiah for all of his many achievements because it's thanks to him that we're here. On that happy note, we conclude the book of Isaiah in a survey sort of way. And then we're up to the book of Jeremiah, which is a little more depressing the whole time, as opposed to here, where it's you know, it's depressing for a lot of it, but then you get that big boost at the end, and you feel great. All the same, there are some fabulously interesting topics, and he's the prophet, other than Moshe himself, the prophet whose personality you get to know the most in the entire Bible. He's really fabulously, he's a powerful character, and I look forward to doing that with you over the next three weeks. Thank you so much. Looking